Um, let's, uh, let's turn now to God's Word. The passage is printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, we're starting in Genesis, the end of chapter 2, uh, verse 25. This is God's Word. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would be our teacher, um, that this word uh, would uh, examine us, examine our hearts, and that this word would drive us to Jesus. So we ask you to be our teacher now, and uh, Lord, I ask that you would forgive the sins of the one who teaches, for Lord, you know my sins are many. We thank you that uh, it is in your good grace that you take a fallible teacher to bring your infallible, perfect word to your people. So be with us. We need your presence now. Guide us. Help us to uh, um, apply this text um, to each of our lives individually. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, so for those of you who are parents, uh, you know that, especially young kids, or if if your kids are older, when your kids were younger, you know that kind of one of the most formative moments in you know a little kid's day is at the very end when you're tucking them in and you uh, uh, sit down and they're sitting there still just looking up at you and it's time for you to you know talk to them to give vision to their life. You know, I kind of have a ritual. I go, I, I generally tuck in my, my kids and. Um, I, I take them through a little ritual where I kind of talk to them about their day, talk about recess and, you know, who are they playing with and what was going on. And then, and then I take some time to just, you know, tell them what they mean to me. You know, you're, you're a gift to me. Uh, God, uh, I thank God that you're my, you're my child. You make me happy. I'm glad to be your dad. And then I pray for them. I thank God for them. And I have this little lullaby that I, I wrote when Lucy was born that I, that I kind of sing over them. And um, what's kind of happening, you know, a, a child's day is kind of like a lifetime. You know, they're working, uh, playing, they have relationships, 
And, uh, and then at the end of the day, this kind of little scene, this little ritual where we sit down and we tuck our kids in, is, it's like a mini judgment day. Okay, I've lived my life. Now give me a verdict on who am I. Right? They're sitting there looking at me. Who am I? What, what am I worth to you? And uh, they're looking for a verdict. And, and a huge amount of, of, of their forming is for me to put that verdict on their life. You're, you're valuable to me. And uh, that God has built into the rituals of our families judgment. And judgment is a good thing. And actually, you know, as we, when you look at this passage in Genesis 3, it appears that God had a similar kind of ritual with, uh, with Adam and Eve. You can, um, you know, these humans that he's just made, he's breathed life into them. They're made in his own image. And then it says this in, in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so, uh, you know, this little phrase, they heard God's walking in the the garden in the cool day. Let me make a couple comments about this. Um, First of all, the word that's used there for walking, you know, it doesn't come out as much in English, uh, is really, it's not just that he was walking, but it's that he was walking, uh, God was walking in the garden as it was his habit of doing. So this was kind of a regular thing that God would do, kind of at the end of the day, it's cool, you know, they've, they've been working, they've been working in the garden, they're sweating, they're kind of, the, the culmination of the day, and God would come down and kind of hear about their, their work, and, uh, and he would give them a verdict on their day, who, how much, how valuable they were to him, and, and he would tell them what they meant to him. It was like a little judgment scene, and actually, if you don't, if you don't believe me... Um, the word, the, not to get too much into the words and stuff like that, but the word that's used there for in the cool of the day, God, God came and was walking in the cool of the day. Well, the, the word for cool is ruah, which is a Hebrew word for spirit. And actually, in some sense, you could translate and say that God came and walked among them in the garden in the spirit of the day. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that the day, the spirit of the day, uh, the day of the Lord is God's judgment. And so, in some sense, uh, there's a, you know, double meaning of this kind of time of refreshment at the end of the day and, you know, the cool evening, and it's a kind of a time for judgment. And, um, and on this occasion, God comes for his kind of nightly time with Adam and Eve, and this is what it says in the middle of verse 9. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. And what we see here is one of the, the biggest tragedies of sin is that sin takes judgment which is supposed to be something that we deeply long for. So it's, it's supposed to be a time where God sets his eyes upon us. He beholds us. Just like, just like when I'm sitting with my kids and they're looking up at me and I look down at them and I say, this, this is what you mean to me. That's what judgment was. I mean, how, how many of you think of judgment that way? I can't wait for it. I can't wait to be, uh, for uh, God's eyes to be, face to be turned upon me. We don't think of judgment as a positive thing. But that's because of sin. Judgment was supposed to be something that we longed for. And what sin has done is it's transformed it into something that Adam and Eve are dreading. They're fearing. They're running away from. They're hiding themselves from. And what this passage um, shows us is that the reason for this is two, th- is two things, really. That first, that sin, uh, sin produces shame. Um, that's, that's, what they're hi- that's what they're hiding from, is a sense of shame. And the second, what we're going to see in this passage is that shame uh, goes on to produce contempt. And um, these are, uh, 
Now, what I want to do is I want to unpack these two, statement, these two statements. Sin produces shame, and shame produces contempt. And uh, what we'll see, and what the conclusion from that will be, is that for us to return to the deepest things that we're longing for, for someone's face, for someone's eyes to turn upon us and to be, behold us, what we desperately need is a Savior. And so um, let's kind of look at these two things. Um, actually, these two things, shame and contempt, are exactly what Jesus comes to deal with in, in his ministry in the gospel. So that's where we're going to come to again. So, so first, let's look at um, uh, the, the, these effects of, sh- of sin that uh, sin produces shame. Um, Dan Allender, Dan Allender is a, a president of a Christian uh, counseling graduate school down in, uh, down in Seattle, and he's, he's written a book called The Wounded Heart, which kind of gives an extensive discussion on shame. This is one of the things that he says. He says, it is an awful experience to be aware that we are seen as deficient and undesirable by someone who we hope will deeply enjoy us. Let me, I'm going to read that again because this is good. It is an awful experience. It's an awful experience. Shame is an awful experience. To be aware that we are seen as deficient and undesirable by someone who we hope will deeply enjoy us. Now, uh, one of the key words in that sentence, thanks, Jim. Um, one of the key words in that sentence uh, is the word seen. You know, for Allender, he says that shame is an experience of the eye. So, you know, you take something that... Uh, something that's kind of socially vulgar, like, you know, picking your nose and eating it, something like that, you, which generally, you know, you, you do that, you do it in, you're like, I don't do that, um, <laughs> you do that, you do that in, in the back, you know, when you're alone, no one's around, it's not a big deal, it's, uh, it doesn't even phase you, but, you know, when Shannon and I were just dating, and um, we're, we're driving in my, my car, it was an 87 Pontiac, you know, I didn't have a, no rear view mirror, uh, the passenger door doesn't close all the way. And, you know, it's already a, an image of shame in itself that I'm taking Shannon out in my 87 Pontiac. And, uh, you know, we're driving along, and I try to sneak, sneak a little dig. And um, <laughs> Shannon looks over right at that moment. She said, you just picked your nose and ate it. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I didn't. She goes, yes, you did. That is disgusting. And, uh, you know, something that normally wouldn't have even phased me, I wouldn't have thought twice about, I may still have pangs of shame. And, and the problem is... It's not what I did, but that her eyes were upon me. It was, uh, shame is an act of the eyes. Oh, I'm sorry. Now you guys are embarrassed when I'm telling you that. Um, um, she, you know, she beheld me and she, she found me disgusting. And uh, what we would see is that um, the result of sin in the life of Adam and Eve is that they can no longer stand before God and have him behold them. He can, they, they can't have him look at them. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you see what it says there in, in verse 9, that the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It's actually, uh, the word presence is the word face. They hid themselves from the face of the Lord, from his eyes. They didn't want him to see, it, to see them. And so what was originally supposed to be the most satisfying experience of their day, you know, they're working, they're, um, they're made in God's image, and at the end of the day, God is supposed to come and receive them. They're supposed to have this face-to-face encounter with God, and God's going to love them and affirm them, and, and now they're running away from it. They hate that because they don't want to be seen. And what this is, is that's shame. Now, what is the cause of shame? Well, you know, I've said uh, sin produces shame. But this text gives this really amazing, uh, really amazing answer of where does shame come from. Uh, look at, uh, 
you know, look at how God responds to Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, they're hiding from him. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So here's Adam's shame. And this is, this is, these are the two question, questions that God confronts him with. Look, listen to these two questions. He said, Who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, in our culture, there's broadly kind of two visions of what sends, what sends people into hiding. What, what gives people a sense of shame that they need to uh, retreat and, uh, and run away from society, run away from relationships, run away from you know, being themselves. And you know, the first is kind of the, I guess, the liberal vision of what happens to say it's largely your environment that causes a sense of shame. You know, so if you're, uh, if you're poor, um, your poverty will cause you to be poor. Um, or uh, if you're, um, you know, or your family, if you're grown up in a family and you're, uh, you're abused, it's largely that environment that someone uh, doesn't value you. There's some, someone around you that, uh, that is putting on you a sense of shame and that's holding you back. And so, um, so basically, it's our environment that, that's causing us to feel a sense of shame. Which, you know, when you take something like poverty, which, uh, you know, there's obviously many reasons and many things that cause poverty. But overwhelmingly, the Bible says that the number one reason that causes poverty is oppression. is other people's sin. It's the environment that we're put in. We're put into a sinful environment that uh, drives us into hiding, that causes shame in our lives. Um, but on the other hand, you have kind of the conservative vision um, which will respond to this by saying that saying that it's your environment that causes your sense of shame, you know, causes hardship in your life, creates a, a victim mentality. So you know, programs like welfare, which are trying to cre- create equal opportunity and uh, only teach people um, to be helpless, uh, to to, ha- to be victims, and they don't learn that you know we live in a, in a country with innumerable opportunities. And when you have that idea that it's your environment that, that is, is hindering you, uh, then you don't realize that it's your personal de- decisions that, that cause things like poverty or, or cause shame. And that's, that's what you really need is you need to take responsibility for your life and you need to make the right decisions. You need to overcome your own sin. It's not other people's sin. It's your own sin that's a problem. And so, you know, of course, we all have to think through that in our own lives of, as we face relational problems and uh, you know, problems at work, whatever it is, we need to say, oh, is this, is this something that happened to me um, that has impacted the reason I'm like this, why I, f- why I feel a sense of shame, why I, why I need to run into hiding, or is it my own sin? Is it my own laziness? Is it my own, uh, um, uh, you know, what, whatever it is? And you look at this passage and you see how amazingly balanced God is. And how amazingly balanced the Bible is. Um, he knows that it's both our environment, it's, it's both other people's sin and our personal choices, our own sin, that impact our sense of shame and send us into hiding. And so, uh, you know, first, the first question that God asks is, uh, who told you? The first question God asks Adam is, who told you you were naked? Who are you listening to? You know, God has said, God made him naked. It was good. It said that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. And someone has, has put it into his mind, has, is sinning against uh, Adam and creating a sense of shame in him that's driving him into hiding. And, and God says, who are you listening to? And, you know, that's a question we have to ask. You know, there are certain things about the way God's made us. And because of the sin, sinfulness of the world and society and the devil and our own flesh, 
that um, that we have to answer, we have to ask the question: Who are we listening to? You know, the the, the shape of our bodies, or, or our personalities, or you know, we're quiet in groups, or or we compare ourselves to other people and say, "Gosh, I wish I should I, I should be more like that." And all of these things, God says, "Who are you listening to? You should be listening to my word, and not to not to the the world, the flesh, and the devil um, that are, will create a sense of shame in your life." Um, but of course. On the other hand, God does not say to Adam and Eve, oh, you poor victims, you, uh, you know, you've been lied to by that wily serpent. It's his fault um, that you've sinned and that you, you're running away from me, that you're in rebellion. You're just a victim. He doesn't say that to him. Uh, he, he asks him a second question. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, you know, of course, God knows the answer to these questions, uh, you know, He's not trying to get information from Adam. He's trying to get a confession from Adam. He wants Adam to come to him and confess his sin. I mean, just look at how God comes on the scene. You know, if my, if my kids were sinning against me and uh, they were hiding, hiding from me, I'd come into the room. I'd say, you get out here the second. Get out here and talk to me. Come out of hiding right now. And how does God come? He comes and he says to Adam, where are you? He's, you know, Adam's thinking, oh, I'm sinning, I better hide. I'm, uh, you know, this is the creator of the universe. Maybe I'll hide behind this bush. Uh, he, he won't think to look there. And, uh, and what God does is, he, is God comes and he begins a conversation. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't condemn Adam outright. He begins and he begins to ask Adam questions because he's inviting Adam to himself. He's inviting a confession. And uh, what we are then, what that means is that we are simultaneously people who are, have been sinned against. You know, who, who told you that you were naked? That we're people that, that are in our environment. We're an environment that we're sinned against. And uh, we're people that, that have sinned and rebelled against God. We're both of those. And to both of those, God invites us to come to him. You know, whether it's, it's the, we've been lied to, um, you know, and who told you? Who are you listening to? God says, come to me and hear my word. Hear the truth that I say about you. And when we've rebelled against God, when we've disobeyed him and turned our back on him, God says, come, in, come to me and confess your sin. Admit your sin. Now, in both, so both of these God invites us to come to him. But if we don't do that, if with our sense of shame, we do not go to God with it, then an awful, uh, that awful experience of shame will turn into something violent. It will turn into something terrible. And what it does is it creates in us the, one of the most destructive tendencies in any human relationship, content. And so this leads to our second point. So the first, our, our, our first point is, is that sin um, produces that awful experience of shame. Both, both the sin of other people and our own, our own sin, our own rebellion to God, what the effects of both of these things is shame. And what this shame creates in us then goes on to produce contempt. Now, when we, uh, when we feel a sense of shame, uh, when we sense that uh, we are seen as deficient or undesirable, our instinct is to deflect the shame, to deflect the eyes that are upon us away, to get them off as, as quickly as possible. In fact, I, I shared this story with you maybe six months ago when Shannon and I were living in, in St. Louis, we went to Sam's Club. Sam's Club's kind of like Costco, this big you know, warehouse box place. We had a list of stuff we were getting filled up our, our, our cart. We, had, we, we just had two kids at the time. And we, we come up to the, to the checkout, uh, checkout line, and we're waiting in line. And Shane says, oh, you know, I forgot to get toilet paper. I need to run back and get toilet paper. 
So I say to her, uh, you know, I just, it's a real pet peeve of mine, you know, when you, when you for, leave me in line with the kids. I'm trying to keep the kids in line, and they're running all over the place, and we've got to stay here. And, you know, I really don't like it when you do that. And so she, you know, naturally says, what did you want me to, what do you want me to do? Not get the toilet paper? I mean, we're here. What, what, I got to get the toilet paper. What, what's, what do you expect? I'm sorry. And, uh, and so at that moment, uh, there's, I, this kind of sense of shame of like, okay, obviously I'm being petty. Obviously I'm being foolish. And, um, and she's exposed that about me, that I'm being this petty husband who can't even watch my own kids in line for five minutes while she runs against the toilet paper. And so the, this is how I respond to that sense of shame. You know, this is, I, I don't recommend this, this response. Is I said to her, well, I think, I think you forgot the toilet paper on purpose. I, I, you just, you just want to walk around and uh, get samples while I, while I have to wait in line with the kids. I mean, what? I, I mean, anyone who knows my wife would know that's crazy. That she forgot the toilet paper on purpose. And uh, what's happening is I, there, I, I've, there was a, a sense of shame. Um, and what I've done, what I see is her eyes have come upon me, and I see her judgment in Shannon's eyes. And so what I do is I lash out. I, I try to deflect the eyes of judgments away from me, and I try to turn it back on her. You're the foolish one. You're the sinful one. And it's that kind of contempt is precisely what we see Adam do in this passage. When God, you know, God invites him to confess his sin, he says, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree that I to- told you not to eat? And Adam's, look at Adam's response in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. As God, as God questions Adam's obedience, Adam's response is to throw it back in God's face. It's your fault. It's that w- the wife that you gave me. It was her that gave it to me. Uh, it's, it's your fault for giving me the wife, and it's her fault for, for giving me the fruit. And, uh, and so Adam's first response is contempt. And then Adam goes on, you know... To not own his disobedience, but to blame shift. To, to shift the blame and to shift the shame off of him. And I, in fact, one of the most striking things about this whole passage is that we only, you know, before the fall of humanity, before sin comes into humanity, and before Adam and Eve sin, we only have one sentence of, of a human talking with no sin. And what is, you know, what's the one thing that we have Adam saying before the fall? It's, it's a song. It's basically a song. It's praising his wife, thanking God for his wife. He says, this is last. It's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's what an unfallen man uses his mouth for, uses his words for, is to praise his wife and to thank God for his wife. That's, what, that's his response. Almost the first thing we have coming out of a man's mouth after sin has come into his life, after he's disobeyed God and turned his back on God, almost the first thing, is blaming his wife for the situation, blame-shifting. And let me just uh, pause there for a minute and say that if you're a husband, what that means is that one of the main ways that sin will manifest itself in your, in your life, in your relationship, in your marriage, is in the way that you speak to your wife. You know, uh, you're, uh, is to pour contempt on her. You, you know, we're gonna, you're going to face all kinds of sense where, things where you're going to feel a sense of shame in your, you know, in your work, you know, things that you have responsibility for that you don't think you're, you're uh, meeting the standard, doing, doing all that you should be doing. 
And your, your temptation, your instinct, is to, be, to, to deflect that shame and to put it on your wife and pour contempt on your wife and how you speak to her. And let me just tell you that, that the redemption of a marriage, the redemption of a man, one of the first ways that that's going to manifest itself is that he's going to begin to thank God for his wife again. He's going to use his wife uh, for praising her and uh, instead of using his mouth to be harsh for her. And, you know, uh, one of the things is that we also see that Eve uh, kind of follows suit and shifts blame as well. If you look in verse 13, then, uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the exact, you know, this is the exact pattern that you see in innumerable uh, marriages, that, broken marriages that have collapsed. This is the pattern. Sin and disobedience against God, and yet no one is willing to come out and confess their sin to God. No one is willing to openly say, I've rebelled, I've, uh, I've disobeyed. Um, but to blame shifts, say, it's not my fault, it's their fault. You should see how they're treating me. You should have seen what they've done. They've done it. It wasn't me. And, uh, and, and that's a recipe uh, for a broken marriage. And so what we have, you know, what, we have a very penetrating and relevant passage here in Genesis 3. But the question is, what do we do about it? Shame uh, is awful and uh, contempt for, you know, pouring contempt and deflecting. And it's like a venom that we're spitting us even worse than shame. So what's the answer? Well, it turns out that uh, shame and contempt were two of the most central issues that Jesus dealt with in you know, his life and in his sacrificial death on the cross. And to deal with contempt, to deal with you know, that harshness, the blame shifting that, that is, is such a huge temp- temptation for us, uh, it means to first deal with our shame. And the end of shame is for someone to set their eyes on you, to behold you, and to find you desirable, for someone to enjoy you. And, and it takes you the trust for you to stand before someone and let them do that. And uh, what I said before is that shame both comes from other people's sin, uh, you know, our environment, and from our own sin. And in both these regards, the gospel shows us that Jesus is a savior. Jesus is a savior from sin. Jesus is a savior from shame. Jesus is a savior from contempt. First of all, um, you know, and the ways that you see this is that in Jesus' ministry, one of the main focuses of his kind of earthly life and ministry was breaking down um, the the ways that, you know, society, families, culture, religion had um, laid shame on people. So, you know, he's meeting the blind and the lame and the rejects and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and he's inviting them to come to him. You know, he's touching the, the lepers. He's eating with uh, the tax collectors. And all of these things are saying, come to me. I will not reject you. Um, I, I want you. Um, you know, I want to behold you. You do not need to be ashamed. And, it, and of course, that's what he does for us. And interestingly, um, all these people who, you know, that's what Jesus does. That's what he, he, he does. Don't, don't be ashamed. Whoever comes to me, I will no way cast out. And yet all these people, they come to him, they're broken, they've been hurt, they've been wounded by the world, and yet Jesus does not say to them, oh, you're, you're all such victims, uh, you poor things. What he, he actually calls them all to repent. He calls, he calls uh, the, the poor who have been oppressed, he calls them to repent. And, uh, and actually, um, it's for their sin that he actually goes to the cross and atones for their sin and pays for their sin. 
And in fact, for some of you, you know, when I'm talking about uh, contempt, a husband uh, using his words harshly for his wife, you say, gosh, my, my mouth is just like full of venom. I, I, I do that. I, I am always blame shifting. You're talking about me. What the gospel says is that even, in, you know, and, the, and then you're already feeling a sense of shame about, uh, you know, maybe your job or, it, you know, how you've been treated as a child. And then you go on to sin more and, you, and you're, you, you know, failing as a father, failing as a, as a mother, wh- whatever it is. And it just increases the shame even more. And what the gospel says is that for every sin, every word of contempt, every, uh, every bitterness and harshness that you've ever done, Jesus has paid for every one that you've ever done and ever will do on the cross. He has sealed your pardon so that he can look at you and so that the Father can look at you, behold you, and say, I'm not ashamed of you. You're my child. I delight in you. You, are, uh, you uh, give me pleasure. You give me delight. And so what that means is that everything about the cross is about transforming judgment. You know, something that we've that sin has caused us to fear. It's caused us to run away from or run into hiding. Uh, that we don't want God's eyes looking us, at us again. The cross says God's eyes can now fall upon us again. And that judgment can again be the thing that we long for. The thing that we want. We want God to look at us. Because that we know that in Jesus we have God's delight. That shame is ended. Shame is done with. Shame is put away with. And because shame is put away with, our hearts are softened. And, and we're no longer filled with contempt. And what Jesus is doing is actually making us here as a church into a community that is pushing back shame. You know, the shame that people have, the wounds that people have had from other people's sins, that they would come here and be treated differently, that they'd be loved, they'd, be, they'd find a family, they'd find people who care about them and listen to them and enjoy them and, and laugh with them and are thankful for them. And they hear the gospel. People who would come here and hear for every sin that... In Jesus, there's a Savior. And uh, when, those, uh, when those two things happen, the deep wounds of shame, big questions that our world is asking, here, where the gospel is preached, where Christ's love is, is, is lived out, that shame can be pushed back, and healing can begin by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you would teach us to run to Jesus, that um, he uh, would wash us of our shame, wash us of our sin, and that he would cleanse our mouths especially, that we would not pour contempt on you, that we would not blame you uh, for our sin, we would not uh, uh, blame others and blame shift, um, but that we would come before you, confess our sins, and find that you are good, and that we find in Jesus a Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.